Okay. Hannah, do you want to come with me to today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cast the check. Yeah. I also need to go to the beat, the pharmacy. Oh. Yeah. Some sort. Okay. Because I need to get. I'm an enabler. Okay. I'm sure they have tax solution. That's what they told me to get. Okay. Okay. We can go off to class. If we can um, put all of the smartphones in the smartphone bin. Toby, would you mind coming this down? Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. That's my water. Shut up. What? That was mine. Shh. It's class. <laughs> it's nothing. All right. Okay. So. In Elul, and into Tishrei, we learn chapter one. So everyone's ready for a quiz? Uh-huh. Yes? Someone said yes? Yeah. Okay. Ready for a quiz? Jamie looks ready. Jenna's like, oh, am I back in school? Yeah, you don't even know what to say. Okay. No, I'm not going to quiz you. That would be nice. Plus, I don't want to like, feel the pain of disappointment. <laughs> you wouldn't. We would definitely. Okay. So, you sure, sure. So we'll try. Oh. They would <laughs> okay. All right. So we learned. We learned that this whole book is to teach us how to make Judaism close to us in our hearts. That ring a bell? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that the approach of the Tanya is going to be what kind of an approach? I am giving you a quiz now. The long, short road. The long, short road. Long because there's a lot of process. How much process is a lot of process? More than, than you want. want to do. More than you yeah. want. Maybe there's hope. And they won't be disappointed <laughs> in the end. Um, and it's short because you eventually get there. Okay. And... The first half of chapter one, we dealt with the fact that the sages divide Jews into different categories. Broadly, there are three categories. What are the three categories broadly? Tzadik, Benoni, Russia. Very good. Okay. What do we know about what do we know about those categories? What do we know? There's a lot and know from chapter one. If you heard other stuff, which is know what we know from chapter one. Yes, yes, that is right. You can be perfect, but only if you're a tzaddik or a rasha, by the way. Notice there's no bainini gomor. There's no perfect bainini. Um, but fine, yes. You can be a perfect tzaddik and you can be a perfect rasha. Um, you can't be a perfect bainini. Okay, what else do we know about those categories? There's no overlap. They don't overlap. There's no overlap. There's no overlap. There are distinct, <laughs> there are distinct categories. They are not gradual. Guys, that's what I meant. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They don't map onto different outcomes in life necessarily. Right. In other words, yeah. The, the, the whether whether your life is a is a, is a, is a sh- sunshine and, and gumdrops, or whether you live in uh, some sort of dark, brooding clouds of doom. Um, what? Okay. <laughs> Well, either way, it, it, does, it, it does not directly correlate with whether you're a tzaddik or a rasha. Whether you're, okay. So what we, know about a, what we know about a rasha is that being a rasha 
is easily ascertained because all you need to do is sin or not object to someone else sinning or neglect to do mitzvahs that you're supposed to do. In other words, like basic inner tolerance and, and uh, acceptance of violating God's will qualifies a person as a rasha. So that basically makes all of us rasha. Yeah. It's harsh, right? So it's a lot easier to be a rasha than to be a It's extremely easy, yeah. yeah. You know the easy. You know what the easiest thing to do is the thing that takes the least amount of effort. Nothing. That's right. Okay. A tzaddik, on the other hand, is someone who has no evil inclination. Okay. I have a question. About yeah. That. We talked about with Maya, like how Adam, since he was so holy, like he had the greatest Yitzhar Hara, mm-hmm. and so that tzaddik is it that the tzaddik. The greater the Sonic, the greater the Yetzirah. The greater the Yetzirah, but that, that they like overcame, or that they like dissolved. So, there are two kinds of things that we call the Yetzirah. There's a Yetzirah in a very broad sense, which is the desire to do things that you shouldn't do. In that sense, yes, the greater the Tzaddik, the greater the Yetzirah. However, there's a Yitzhar in a more specific sense, which is the desire to do things that are evil. Now, there's a difference between things that you're not supposed to do and things that are evil. Um, we're going to get to that later in Tanya, but briefly, um, there's a myth, which is that good only comes in one variety, so that if you're, if you're righteous, if you're holy, if you can do the right thing, then by definition there's like one answer to, to what to do, but if you're going to do wicked, you can do many things. And one of the fundamental principles of Kabbalah, which is an adopted by Chassidus, is that there's many paths of what's right. And so what could be right, something could be right and holy and good, and yet for you, the wrong decision to make. Um, An example of this, um, if a person who is very holy decides to spend all of his life uh, or her life um, devoted to coming closer to God in, the, in, in their own private life and not sharing and inspiring other people. Are they sinning? Are they doing something evil? The answer is no. Now, are they doing something that, are they doing something that they should be doing or shouldn't be doing? Now that's a different question because, as we actually see in this week's Parsha, some righteous people like um, Hanukh, who's mentioned in the last week's Parsha, um, he was righteous, but he didn't have the fortitude to maintain his righteousness if he would be with other people. So for him, the better choice was to live a life of seclusion, and when that became threatened, God took him out of this world. But there's other righteous people that that would be the wrong decision, right? So if Moshe had not led the Jewish people, that would have been the wrong decision. Okay. So there are many times when someone who is perfectly righteous does something which is called in Hebrew a chait, which can literally be translated as sin, but there's many words for sin. Um, the word chait specifically means a, a deficiency. In other words, they make a decision that they should not have made, but that doesn't necessarily mean they did something evil. So there are different ways of interpreting exactly what Adam did wrong. Um, it, um, but if you follow the idea that a tzaddik is someone who has no evil inclination, then the way you would have to understand the idea that the greater the tzaddik, the greater the inclination is, the greater, the, the more a person is a tzaddik, the greater the distance is between what's comfortable for them to do and what they should do. 
um, let me put it to you like this. We would imagine the hardest challenges in life are between you know, doing something which is really, really wrong and something which is really, really right. Um, and the reason is because that's the challenge we usually face. And we're all biased to our own challenges. If you're never tempted to do the wrong thing, you now face a very different challenge, which is the challenge to do the thing that's right, that's within your comfort zone, or the thing that's right, that's beyond your comfort zone, or the thing that's right, that transcends your belief in your ability to do it, like Avram Venus tests. And in that sense, that person is facing a greater struggle. Um, but in terms of the, te- the language of Tanya, we wouldn't call that, strictly speaking, Yetzirah, because we're going to reserve the term Yetzirah for the des- that thing that pushes us and motivates us to do things that are truly and objectively evil and abhorrent in God's eyes. So, okay. that's the long answer. Okay, so Tzadik doesn't have a Yetzirah. It doesn't mean that Tzadik doesn't have conflicting emotions. So Tzadik's, the Tzadik's equivalent per se, about Yitzhah Har, is that it's struggling to do that which is right, but which is out of attention. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see this. I mean, like, you know, Moshe has the whole back and forth with whether he should accept the the mission from God. Um, You know, Avram has his tests. Okay. Fine. And then the Baini is clearly someone who has an evil inclination and yet is incapable of sin. Beyond that, we don't really have any good, deeper understanding of the inner psychology of the tzaddik, the rush, and the benani. Right? And that we're going to get to later on in Tanya, eventually. Then we move on to the idea that we have two souls, and we spent the second half of the chapter talking about the first soul, which is going to be called the animal soul. That soul comes from something called klipa. Does anyone remember what klipa means? Yeah. It's a shell. Okay. Can we also call it a peel? You could call it a peel. A peel? When you peel the You could. What about a rind? But. <laughs> <laughs> you could. You could call it a peel or a rind or a husk. Um, you can call it. You can call it whatever you want. Uh, just the, the, thing, the thing to realize is that klipa is something that covers over what's inside of it, the fruit inside of it. And you can't get at the fruit unless you get through the klipa. Okay? Um, it's also called sitra achra, which is Aramaic for the other side. Okay. Why is it called the other side? Do you remember that? Because it's not good? Because it's not holy. Okay. Yeah. It's either, things are either holy or they're not. We're going to go talk about that later. So there's this unholy thing that covers over the godliness inside of it, that that's what defines our existence as human beings. Um, and then we discussed the different qualities. It's good qualities, it's bad qualities. Yeah. And one thing that we pointed out is that it, this, this klipa is what's known as klipas noga. What does klipas noga literally mean? Anyone remember? Translucent. It means that even though it covers over the godliness, there's still an indication that there's something inside, like a translucent piece of glass. You can't see what's on the other side, but you can tell if there's light on, there's light is off. Right? That's why they make bathroom walls with translucent glass. Mm. They wouldn't make the one of transparent glass, that would be disturbing. Yes? <laughs> um, when, when people name their daughter Noga, they're naming their child translucent? I have never heard the name Noga. Really? I know someone who's name is Noga. 
that's how you would hear it. No, 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 what? No, that's no with an I. No, means, no, means luminescent, radiant, translucent. Right. Right, but the thing to remember is languages have, all three languages have, words have have like a family of meanings associated with the word. So in, in the context when you saw a klipas noga, we don't mean that the klip itself is radiant, we mean the radiance is coming through, so the proper word is translucent there. But yeah, sometimes noga, um, like and we say in our in the prayers on Shabbos, um, about the sun and the moon, that they're mafikim noga, that they exude noga, and that means that they exude radiance. Okay. All right. But wait, it's translucent, but not see-through. Not see-through. So you, if you look at your animal soul... You cannot see the godliness within it, but if you look at your animal soul, you can see indications that there's something good about it, which is the um, innate compassion and kindness that all Jewish people have. That was a brief rundown of everything we learned in about a month. Questions? All right, we start chapter two. Did we get any No. Well, you did. The packet was a trial. Was decided by the powers that be not to continue the packet. But you have a different packet. What's our packet? The shluchas have a different packet. It's all in Hebrew. Well, you didn't get it yet. Okay, it's chapter two. The second soul of a Jew is truly a part of God above. Okay. I would tell you the page we're on, but we've already established that six. every book has a word. Minus five, right? See, so there you go. No, six, six and seven. Five and six. Maya and Hannah have the same right. book. So we're not going to... <laughs> this the Hebrew. Okay. So the second part of a Jew, the second soul of a Jew is truly a part of God above. Okay. Now... This chapter is going to go slower than chapter one, by the way. Okay. Okay. Fine. So <coughs> now, so the second soul is a part of God, truly a part of God. So I want everyone to imagine God is like a pie. Your favorite kind of pie. If you don't like pie, you've already established you don't like cupcakes, cheesecake, whatever, pizza, and you can take a you know piece of the pie, right? So God divvies up little pieces of himself and sticks them inside every Jew. Right? That's what. What? Like 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 someone like someone dishing out pie to people. Everyone gets a little piece of pie on the plate. Now, why are you laughing? Big pie. <laughs> oh, you know. It touched my. We, we do say there's no fathoming God's greatness. We know there's no fathoming God's greatness. Okay. Now, I would like I would like a show of hands. How many people think that that is an accurate analogy as to what the altar means here? That the soul, second soul of a Jew, is truly a part of God. Nope, nobody thinks that. That's like a. You think that? God's like a pie? No? Okay. Why not? That's what he says. I mean, if you have something, you have a part, you have a hole, then you have a part, right? 
Is God missing pieces? We're getting smaller as we But if it's infinite, then it's not getting smaller. Okay. 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 It's P-I, So, fortunately, fortunately for us, the Alter Rebbe actually gives us some explanation. Unfortunately for us, the explanation is terse. But some explanation is better than none, and it gives us some guidance as to what he means. What does terse mean? It means it's short. <laughs> A few words with lots of meaning. Okay. Okay. As it is written, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay? So that's already something. Being a part of God is meant to be understood by the description, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So, all right, everyone I'm sure is up to date with the weekly Torah reading, yes? Since we just started again. Okay. So, which Parsha is this verse from? Very good. Who is the he that did the breathing, and to whose nostrils did he breathe? Very good. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question. How is that helpful for what our topic is? Our topic is the second soul of a Jew. And that verse is a description of? Man. See a problem? Yeah. I don't see it. Well, it seems like Adam received the soul of the Well, yeah, it says the second soul of a Jew, right? So there's a difference here being made that Jews have this other soul, which is part of God from above. And then to explain that, we're quoting a verse about Adam, who was not a Jew. Adam was the first human being. What? Seems pretty Jewish. You know, I mean, <laughs> so my kids came home from, from school with pictures about the Parsha. And let's just say that Adam, he had a strangle and pay us. And Chab had a tichel. It was very cute, actually. <laughs> Um. No, 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 no. This, and, this, and this is, by the way, before this is, this is before this, this is before the snake. So, yeah. it's funny because some of the pictures are very accurate, but that, those, those ones weren't. God from an book. Okay. No. This is this is this is this is. I don't know if it's the best place to start, but it's an important place to start. The whole time is based on the fact that there's going to be a special relationship between the Jewish people and God. And there was some parenthetical discussion in chapter one about non-Jews, and I have to give someone the sources. I still have to scan them into the computer. Um, someone asked for But chapter two is speaking about something which is unique to Jewish people. So it's a little bit difficult. Why is the source text a reference to Adam, who is not a Jew? Yeah. Another class, um, we were told that Adam was created circumcised, so he's not Jewish. So who does that? Well, I will answer the question after I answer my question. Because to answer my question, I'm going to answer that question. Okay, so I'm going to throw this out to you. What is a Jew? What defines a Jew? A Jewish mother. A Jewish mother. Well, there's no such thing as a convert. 
Converts don't have Jewish mothers. There are plenty of Jewish atheists. A Jewish soul. But I think it was Harsinai. Yeah, I don't get why Adam can't be Jewish. Okay, so the, the answer to this, the answer to this is that there are actually three different meanings of what it means to be a Jew. Okay? And they're layered. In other words, initially you have one, then on top of that you get a second, then on top of that you get a third. So nowadays, you either <laughs> fit into all three or you fit into none. Okay, let me explain. Initially, there were two kinds of people. Well, actually, initially there was only one kind of person, but within the next generation, then there were two kinds of people. People with a godly soul, the second soul which is a part of God, and people without it. Okay? So God created Adam. Adam was a godly soul in a body. Adam had children. He had grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Did all of Adam's descendants have godly souls? No. Some did, and some didn't. So if we were to say that being a Jew means having a godly soul, then Adam was Jewish. Yeah. Did Chava have a godly soul? Yes. Because she came from his side. Tzela in Hebrew also means rib, it means side. Like the, it says this, the Tzela of the Mishkan, the Mishkan didn't have ribs. <laughs> unless, unless it was made like some giant mammoth or something. Correct. Neither did Adam for that matter. In fact, the Torah makes a very big deal that Adam had a particular son named Shays, who was in God's image just like Adam was. The Medrash talks a lot about this. The Rambam in his God Perplex talks about this. But it was not the case that all of Adam and Chava's descendants were, had the godliness that God imbued them with. So is it, yeah. how do you have two parents, I mean, it's not genetic, but like, how do you have two parents with godly souls and you end up without it? Okay. So, so what we're going to do is like this. I'm going to give you a crash course on these three different definitions of Jew, and then we're going to get back into the Tanya, hopefully, eventually. <laughs> so, th- later on, we're going to see that the, that the godly soul is analogized to a, a flame, and one, one important thing that we all know about a flame is that a flame only can exist under the right conditions, right? If the air is um, too smoggy, if the you know, oil or the wax runs out, right, the flame will extinguish. Which means having a godly soul might be given by God, but if the person is not a fitting vessel for that godly soul, then the godly soul should go out, should vanish. And that's the way it was. That having a godly soul is basically a reward. When a person lived a life that was sufficiently righteous and proper, they were a fitting vessel to have a godly soul um, present in them, present within them, to to shine in them, whatever. Okay. So, like, if you make a, you know, if you put clean oil and clean air in a wick, and you put a spark, then you're gonna have a nice flame. But if you don't take care of it, it's going to go out. And so in that sense, having a godly soul, it's a gift, it was like a gift from God, but a gift can be wasted, a gift can be lost, a gift can be, and just because you received it doesn't mean that your children are going to receive it. And that's how it went until a certain man named Avraham. Avraham, for reasons we're not going to get into right now, 
um, was the first Jew, not in the sense of having godly soul, but the first Jew in the sense that godly soul is something that you get by right, by inheritance. In other words, Hashem made a covenant, a pact with Abraham, that having a godly soul would be part of Abraham and his descendants for all time. Which means as long as you're considered to be part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, you get a godly soul automatically. Doesn't matter how righteous you are, doesn't matter how wicked you are, it's irrelevant. Okay? So that means the metaphysics of what it means to have a godly soul are now different because the godly soul now can, somehow is going to be, exist part of people independent of whether they're a fitting vessel for it or not. And that's in the, that's, um, in the merit of, or, or, or by virtue of the agreement that Hashem made with Abraham. That's the covenant of the parts, which we're going to learn later on in the Parsha as we keep going. So the idea that a, 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 someone, someone is, a, is a Jew because they have a godly soul and no matter what, they always have that godly soul, that idea of having godly soul absolutely permanently by inheritance and you can never lose it, that begins with Avraham. Yeah. Someone raised their hand and asked another question. Yes. So if someone is an unfit vessel and they lose that soul, does that mean they die or they still have? So in temple times, they would die. But I'm talking before the covenant. Like when oh, no, no, they wouldn't. No, no, no. no. But before the covenant, if they lost the godly soul, they wouldn't die. No. They wouldn't die. They just wouldn't be eaten. Yeah. In other words, the idea, in other words, the idea that the godly soul is actually really tied up into who you are as an individual person is a novelty. In other words, when, when Adam was given this godly soul, it was, there was the human being, and then there was this other added thing that they could lose or they could gain. In a sense, it's kind of like, if you want to think of it like prophecy, like you can be really righteous and maybe you'll get prophecy, maybe you won't get prophecy, maybe you have prophecy, maybe you lose prophecy. And when Avram came around, for whatever reason, which I'm not going to explain right now why that is, the godly soul became part of the identity of the person built in, and therefore it cannot be lost, and also cannot be gained. Like, at, at, after Avraham, a person could not be righteous enough and receive a godly soul. So it's like Avram's, this, Avram's descendants all get a godly soul by inheritance, but everyone who's not considered part of Avram's descendants can't get a godly soul no matter how hard they work for one. Like someone can make a perfect candle, but there's no spark. So there's no spark, there's no flame. Yeah? Um, if being a Jew comes from the mother, then why did it start? Was it I didn't say it comes from the mother yet. Get to that. So I'm saying, like, who would his descendants? Okay. Okay, so the way it works is like this. The way it works is like this. Is that it's a covenant that Hashem made with Avraham. And Avraham, and and Hashem, as part of the covenant, he says that the the, the, the verse says, Within Yitzchak will be considered your descendants. So in that, he excludes Ishmael. And he also excludes Esav because it says could be Esav's descendants because it says be Yitzchak within Yitzchak, not all of Yitzchak's descendants. So the first forefather that gets all of his descendants as part of this covenant is actually Yaakov. Um, and if you look in the in the verses that that I sh- that that um, Hashem speaks to Avram about the covenant and the, the sons, that's 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 actually one of the reasons um, why. Why um, 
there's a whole discussion about the Avram's descendants needing brismila or not needing brismila. Okay. Whether it only applies to Jews or it only applies is part of the covenant, it's not part of the covenant. There's a whole discussion about this, whether those two things are linked. Okay. Um, and so actually, the way it works is like this. So Avraham was a Jew in the sense of not having godly soul, but that godly soul is now something that's built in and can't be taken away and can't be gained. Sarah was a Jewess in that sense. Yitzchak and Rivka were Jewish. Yaakov, Esav were both Jewish, but not Esav's descendants. It didn't go through Esav. Ya- but how did Rivka and Sarah? So the 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 way that, the way this works kabbalistically, you remember the idea that like you're two halves of the same soul. Okay, so I don't want to like ruin all the romance in that, but it's usually not true according to Kabbalah. You're usually not two halves of the same soul, unless you're a biblical figure. Yeah, sorry, I hate to break it to you. So, Avraham and Sarah are literally two halves of the same soul. Yitzchak and Rivka are two halves of the same soul. With with Yitzchak and Yaakov and with with Yaakov and Leah and Rachel, it gets more complicated, but they're all part of the same soul, and so. Now, what ends up happening is when you talk about other people, just like regular someone marries somebody else, it doesn't automatically mean the two halves of the same soul. Um, but, but it is true that souls have, half comes down in a male's body, half comes down in a female's body. And basically, unless you're a biblical person or you have tremendous merits, you generally don't end up marrying that other half of your soul. You generally end up marrying somebody else and it works out just fine. Most people's marriages work out just fine over the grand scheme of history. Sorry to bring the romance. Yeah. But isn't there a concept that like even before marriage, your your spouse is like has effect on your soul? Yes, but that's not because of two halves of the same soul. There's a there's a uh, yeah there's a letter of the there's a letter of the Rebbe. We go to all different views, but the Rizal makes it pretty clear that first marriages means the first time the soul comes into the world in its pristine state, and then after that, um, it doesn't work so smoothly. Okay, yeah. What's the reason that you can't marry the same soul, that you are the half of the soul? Like, why would Hashem create you having, you being a half and a man being another half if you're not meant to marry each other? I don't want to answer that because it takes us way too far off topic. Okay. There's the question. Write it down. Why would Hashem make Yes, I will get to it. Yeah, okay, so... Then there was the giving of the Torah. At the giving of the Torah, there was a new definition of a Jew. A Jew is someone whose body is holy, not just someone who has a godly soul. And the consequence of the body being holy is that we do physical mitzvahs. Yeah. Is it... Just more holy, differently holy, or like binary holy versus not holy. Binary holy versus not holy. Binary holy versus not holy. If a non-Jew does something with their body that is like, let's say, rescuing Jewish people in the Holocaust, that doesn't make it holy. We have to. I mentioned this in chapter one, and we're going to come back to it. There's a difference between good and holy. Yeah. Holy and good are not the same thing. So, is there a context of holy non-Jews at all in Yes, and the way this works is because a, because a Jew's body is holy after the giving of the Torah. 
the Jew can transfer the holiness of his body into the physical things that are part of his life that enable him to serve God. Which means if a Jew lives in a society with non-Jews and the non-Jews are helping him serve God, then the same way he makes his food holy and his house holy, he can make his neighbors holy and he can make the person who cleans the street holy and etc, etc, etc. So the holiness of a Jew's body can then be extended to the entire physical world, including non-Jews. I want to go... But that's something that... So there's an idea that a Jew is not just someone with a godly soul, a Jew is someone with a holy body. And that that is, that is um, the power that enables us to do mitzvahs in a physical sense and that those physical actions are holy. In other words, why is it that if you take a palm branch at a certain time of year and wave it around, it's a holy act? It's not because you have a godly soul. Because if Abraham did that, it would not have turned the palm branch into a holy act. Okay. Right. 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 Can I ask then if a, I understand that like organ donation, whatever, is complicated? But if you have a Jewish person who died, whose kidney, let's say, was put into a non-Jew, is that like a mostly not holy with a bit of holiness? So, so, I understand. The, I, I, the answer is like this. The answer is like this. We, the way mysticism works in Judaism is you first need to know the halacha and then you work backwards. I don't know the halacha in terms of how halacha views that, but you would have to first see what Jewish law says about that. And then based on that, you would know like what, what the mystical thing And It's not my field of expertise, so I don't know. Yeah. Can a Jew lose his holiness? No. So you can't use it, lose your holiness or your godly soul. That's right. Okay. Which is why no matter what happens, if a Jew does a mitzvah, it's still a mitzvah. Yeah. Doesn't matter if a Jew, a man puts on tefillin, woman lights Shabbos candles, it's a mitzvah, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the holiness of their body is not something that can be lost. Okay. Now here's the rule. Before Avraham, having godly soul was something you could earn or you could lose. I see your hand just one second. But after Avraham, you have to, in order to have a godly soul, you have to be part of the covenant that Hashem made with Avraham. So now the meaning of Jew is twofold. Part of the covenant that Hashem made with Avraham and having godly soul. You either have both or you have neither. After the giving of the Torah, it's three. You have to have a holy body. And if you have a holy body, you're part of the covenant. And if you're part of the covenant, you have a godly soul. Now, which people get holy bodies? Here's the rule. Ones that are born from a Jewish mother or ones who go through a process like the Jews did at the giving of the Torah. Okay, the conversion process in Judaism is literally a reenactment of the giving of the Torah. Can you say that one more time? A person with a holy body is someone who either was born from a Jewish mother. In other words, her holy body produced his or her holy body. Or alternatively, their body was transformed into holy the same way that the Jews at Mount Sinai, their bodies were turned into holy bodies through the same process of the giving of the Torah. And that's exactly what conversion is. Conversion has three slash four steps. And those are the three slash four steps that happened at the giving of the Torah. What kids are Judaism? Nothing is ever simple, right? The three steps were that they first had to be circumcised if they were male. They had to immerse in a mikvah. They had to accept the Torah. And then the step which um, follows that, but is not, doesn't, it's not, it's complicated what the status of that is, bring a sacrifice. And so if someone wants to convert, there are three steps. Slash four, there's a temple. 
which is number one, if they're male, they need to be circumcised. Number two, then they have to go to the mikvah. And number three, they have to accept the Torah. And if they do that in the presence of, of Jews, then they have basically gone through the process that the Jews went through at Mount Sinai. And their body is now holy. And now they're part of the covenant, and now they have a godly soul. Yeah? So I just missing pieces of the story. When was the sacrifice at Matantor? Read the Chumash. There's a lot of sacrifices. They're sacrificing, there's blood, you know, there's spraying blood on people. It's like, it's very, like, you know... The whole ceremony, yeah, there was like a whole ceremony being at the like before or after God said, I'm the Lord your God. Well it depends, Rashi Ramban, there's Mukhlaqas oh, about so that. It's not in the way. Well it depends. We, yeah. It's, there's a dispute about the order of events. The entire chronological. Yeah. Right. But it's in the actual It's in the actual verses, yeah. There's a lot of description of, of, of sacrificing in Mount Sinai. Okay. So nowadays it's like this. If your body went through the process of Mount Sinai or was generated by the body of someone who went through that process or all the way back, which is why it goes through Jewish mother, not the Jewish father, then you're part of the covenant, then you're entitled to a godly soul automatically and you cannot do anything to lose it. But if you don't have such a body, you're not part of the covenant and you cannot do anything to get that godly soul no matter how good of a person you are. And so that's why we get these confusing things because there's... There are these three things that are unique to Jews, but historically they came in stages. Having godly soul came first. Having it by inheritance came second. Having it being linked to the holiness of the body came third. Okay, so was Adam a Jew? In his era, he would be what a Jew was, but that kind of a creature can't exist anymore. Someone who has a godly soul but can earn it and lose it based on their behavior. Okay? In that sense, we can even discuss whether Avram was a Jew. He was a Jew in one sense, but, that, but, but not in another sense. They, the idea that his body was not holy, that can't apply. You can't have someone with a godly soul nowadays whose body isn't holy. It doesn't work like that. What about after he had... He was circumcised. Right. What about after oh. So that was like a, a, like a mini-prelude to, to, um, to the giving of the Torah, and without making this too graphic, the only part of his body which was holy was the part that was circumcised, which had halachic ramifications because um, sometimes you need a holy object in order to do certain things, and that was the only holy object in existence. Um, but now, after Mount Torah, we don't have that problem. You can read Parshas Chayesara and pay attention. It's a different Parsha. Okay, Can you now going back all the way, one second. One second. going back to your question about other, going back to the question about other being circumcised. So there's the, the lack of circumcision is an indication that the body is not a fitting vessel for a godly soul. So if God created Adam to be a fitting vessel for a godly soul, he would obviously create him circumcised. That's why Jew, Jews are commanded to be circumcised, to make their bodies a fitting vessel. Now, Jews have a godly soul whether they circumcise or not because of the covenant. But you can have one and it's going to be hard to access and tap into it. And therefore, the ability to tap into it does depend on the circumcision to a very big degree. So are Jews today who aren't circumcised, they 
would they still be considered having a holy soul? They have a holy soul, they have a holy body, and they have a blockage between, they have a blockage that prevents them from accessing it fully. In, in a sense, every sin is like that, but being circumcised is just more so. Um, for people who are interested, um, the Talmud says that women are considered to be circumcised by default. For the ultimate Jew. No, it just means like that particular issue. <laughs> no. That particular issue, there's no other way. No, there's no ultimate Jew. We're going to see that. There's no ultimate Jew. Um, but, but there's no, in other words, that particular issue can't exist by a woman. You know, there's, she, by default, whatever man has to happen to a man in order for him to be receptive to God's soul through circumcision, she has by default. Is that because she was, cre- she was created from Adam who already was circumcised? <sighs> Maybe. There's different interpretations. That's one of them. I'm, I'm hesitant until I can give you the reason. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So getting back to the Tanya. So since the Alter Rebbe's interest here is to explain the nature of the godly soul itself, well, the first place the godly soul is mentioned in the Torah is with Adam, even though his possession of the godly soul is in fact different than ours because he was not part of the covenant. And so the things we're going to learn later on in Tanya about the godly soul that are actually true of us but would not be true of Adam. But for now, that, that's not important. Okay. Fine. Now, how do we know that he had a godly soul? Because it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What is significant about this? Well, the Alter Rebbe here also explains, and before he does that, he also says, and thou did breathe the soul into me, that this is something we don't just say about Adam, we say about each, each of us say in the morning prayers, that the souls also breathe into us. So now what is the significance of breathing? And is written in the Zohar, he who exhales, exhales from within him. That is to say, from his inward, inwardness and innermost. For it is something of his internal innermost vitality that man emits through exhaling with force. Okay, so what is the idea of God breathing the soul? So what happens when you breathe, when you exhale forcefully? The Zohar says you put out your most innermost vitality. Does that make sense? Like if you exhale forcefully, your innermost vitality comes out? Yeah, theoretically, but like, no. Like, if you're blowing up with balloon, think about like how much you're like, like you're like, touching not your the thumb of your Well, try this. Try this. I would like everyone to take a deep breath in. Follow, listen to all the instructions beforehand. Then I want you to. <laughs> take a deep breath. Then exhale as forcefully as you can and immediately cover your nose and mouth so that they're airtight and hold them there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? Take a deep breath in, exhale as forcefully as you can, and then cover your nose and mouth so they're airtight and hold it there. <sighs> it's kind of hard, isn't it? <laughs> why, is that, why is that difficult? Because you've got nothing Because everything's out and you're on your way to dying. Yeah. <laughs> your innermost vitality, like, like you're going to die if you exhale forcefully. You're on your way to dying. The only reason we don't die is we take another breath in again. Right? We don't think about it, but if you do it, if you do it like underwater, then you start to notice really quickly that your innermost vitality has gone away. Okay. Is that your innermost vitality? In a physical sense, yes. Okay. But yes. What? We just... As opposed to 
That's right. That's right. But, but, but that's right. When, there's an important thing about analogies, which is you cannot understand how the analogy helps us with the topic at hand unless we understand the analogy itself. Right? Now, if you blow forcefully, you have made a decision to, for the moment, take your entire continued physical existence and spit it out. Now, it happens to be that in every, every regular everyday situations, this is not a big problem. Why? Because you can just take another breath in and you're good, right? Okay. But what happens like, if you're underwater? You don't have that option, right? So like if you, if you take a deep breath in and you go underwater, right? And you breathe out, you start to realize like, I don't have any air, I'm gonna die. Right? So there's an idea. Now, if you contrast that, say, when you normally exhale, we don't tend to exhale that much. And when, even when we're talking, we're communicating with other people. And so there is an idea that you can, with your breath, reserve and hold things back, or you can put it all out. Let me give you a financial example, which will be a little bit easier. I'll go from that one analogy to another. How can you tell how important something is to somebody? One of the ways is how much money they're willing to spend on it, right? Okay. How much money did Avraham spend on marrying off his son Yitzchak? Anyone know? All of it. All of it. All of his money. Just money? Not like well, this is a financial example. But like no, no, like assets. No, no. I mean, all of his assets, everything. He actually wrote a document. Everything. He wrote a document. He gave. He gave to Elias. He wrote a document, and the document gave Yitzchak the legal ownership of every single thing that Avram owned. From now on to all time. Hmm. Oh, so it's not just like. Yeah, he became even like he is now no longer. He has. (laughs) Now, now as a general rule, like you know, is it there's that idea that you shouldn't like give away all your possessions because that kind of makes you vulnerable, right? We have a concept in halacha that you should, you know, if you're if you're giving tzedakah, you still have to make sure that you're reserving enough money for yourself that you're not going to become destitute yourself. So. Why would Avram give away all of his possessions, all of his assets, everything he ever owned? Because it was like his biggest. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like his like. Biggest is not the right no, word. His greatest like. Still not the right word. Like, Maybe it was a bad idea. Maybe you should. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but we're gonna go on the premise that it was a good idea for right now. Why you just because, said that because, you're not supposed to? Because. I'll tell you why. Because, because as a general rule, as a general, unless the Torah goes out of its way to indicate that one of the behaviors of um, the so-called biblical heroes was wrong, we generally try to figure out what positive lessons we learn from them. That is the standard approach to learning Torah. So things that apply for us that we shouldn't do, they can do? No, maybe once we learn the lesson, we can find there's situations where you can do it also. Just because you have a rule doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to the rule. You just said, don't give everything away. That's the rule. Maybe there are exceptions. Are you going to tell us? Well, okay. The, the, I would, okay. So here's the thing. No. What's the di- you use words like biggest and greatest. 
Okay, those words imply that there's something really important, but then there's also things that are secondarily important, mm-hmm. right? Only. Yeah, but if it's the only thing that matters, mm-hmm. then is there any reason to hold anything in reserve? No. No. So this is the issue. When you come to something where the only thing that matters, this is the only thing that matters, then the rule that you should keep money in reserve doesn't apply. Now, how do you determine that in real life? What does that mean? I mean, that's already a more practical question. But, um, for instance, yeah, uh, are you allowed to sign away all your life's assets for a life-saving medical procedure? So. But 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 uh, but then you'll be destitute. But that's when you'll be alive and destitute. <laughs> right, right, but like it's not like, what, right? So so, so the, the idea is because 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 it's not like it's not like living is more important than the money. It's like if living is the question, then it's the only thing that matters at that point. Right. So for whatever the issue is, I mean, Avraham and the, disp- and, and the covenant with God and going through Yitzchak and the success of the project of the Jewish people, that's, the, oh, that's what's at stake. That's the only thing that matters. Now, I'm not Avraham. And, you know, when I marry my kids, it's not like that's the only thing that matters, as important, as wonderful as they are. So I probably shouldn't, like, sign away all my assets to them. It's okay. not fair. Maybe you have to it up. Right. Well, we know what happened to your schmo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so there's so there's so so in the same way, like biologically, when you exhale forcefully, you're not leaving anything in reserve, right? Financially, if you give everything away, that's you're not leaving anything in reserve. In other words, there's an idea of limiting how much you're 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 giving over, how much you're expressing, how much you're sharing, how much you're putting out there. And then there's in contrast an idea where you're not limiting it at all. That everything that you have is just being put on the table. Yeah. Um, just a technical question. Didn't Avram give to his other children presents and stuff? Yes. And there's a whole question how he could have done that because he gave everything to Yitzhak. So one of the answers oh. that he gave them the secret to black magic, which Jews are forbidden to um, practice. He did, really? But yes. he had a few children. He had a lot of children. He had a lot of children, yes. He did what? He did black um, magic? I think like something like in the magic? teens. Black magic? Okay. Okay. What's black magic? There was Yishmael, then there was Yitzhak, and there was a bunch of other ones. Why don't we mention the other ones? What? What's black magic? It's magic that's forbidden. Why is it called black magic? I don't know. That's, that's, I thought they all spoke to the dead. But it's like... Bringing One thing that you're speaking to the dead, not going and waking up. Like Chinese, like, or like calling upon the spirits to help you. It's like this, this stuff you see in the movies. No, it, it exists. Wait, so Avram... It did exist. Uh, didn't it, it just say in here something about sorcery? sorcery? Okay. There is a... <laughs> there is a dispute about whether sorcery exists did exist, never existed. There are differing views. Obviously, the view that says that the gifts that Avram gave his other children was sorcery, necromancy, black magic, Whoa. means that those things, at least at that point, had to exist. Yeah. There are some people um, who like to equate this because he says he sent them off e- to the East, that a lot of the Eastern religions come from that. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. If it suits your fancy to believe that, you can go ahead and believe it. If you think that sounds silly, you don't have to believe it. Um, there's no like Torah source that clearly says that one way or the other. That 
What? He sent these kids off, these other kids off to the east. So maybe all like the eastern mysticism that the Torah forbids maybe comes from that. Maybe it doesn't. People have also speculative theories. Okay. So. Now. So. We look in the Torah. How did God create everything? He spoke. And when you speak. Right. You only let out a little bit of air. Enough to make your sound. Your your voice audible. Right. As opposed to when you exhale forcefully. Right. You're on your way to dying. You can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk for hours and hours and hours and hours without really stopping. It's not a problem unless like you have a heart condition or something. Really. Um, so what does that mean? When God created the world, how much, and we're going to use this word right now, it's very vague, but how much of his godliness, of his godly being, did God invest into creating the world? Well, if, well no, because it describes it as speaking. And in speaking, how much of your breath, how much of your vitality do you put into your words? As much as is necessary. Right? Okay, so now we have to think. How much godliness is necessary to create a world? I don't know. As much as Well, <laughs> fortunately, I do know. Oh. So I can tell you. Whoa. Cool. cool. Yeah. I love when we have answers. Okay. <laughs> it's rare in Judaism, but it does happen. So following, so following the, the God speaking the world into being as the analogy, um, what is the easiest Hebrew letter to say? Anyone know? Aleph. No, Aleph is actually not easy. Like to say. the word? The letter, to pronounce the letter, the not to hey. say the name of the letter. The hey. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's like so complicated. So, so greeting. Okay. No, no, no. No, Jesus. No, no. Because if you, if you anytime, anytime you're exhaling... Is slightly audible. You're actually pronouncing. That's already you're going way too much. Like you don't even do that much. <laughs> like, like, that's like that's like hey. You don't have to do that. You can just. No. All the, the pronunciation of the hey is just that the air coming out of your mouth is audible. That's it. Which is basically the bare minimum. Okay. So it says that God created the world by speaking. And obviously, this is an allegory. The letter hey. Okay, what? so... The letter ha- hey? Yeah. Like he was going... He went, just went going... Lessons. So wait, he's wait, not going to... That was very... What? <laughs> Where does that come from? That comes from a statement of our sages elucidating a verse. <laughs> that um, he said it through the letter so hey. Yeah. Yeah. So there was yeah. no, like... So, but the text says, and Hashem said, let there... Right, well, obviously, it's it's an analogy, right? So, it's not like... None of these are, like, just descriptions of, like, actually what happened in, like, the sensory... God doesn't have a map, obviously, right? So, in terms of how much did God invest into creating the world, the best analogy is, how much do you have to invest into uttering the letter hey? And the answer is relatively... Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. In other words, it's not nothing because something comes out of it, but relatively speaking, it's nothing. Okay. So, when God created the sun, the moon, the stars, the heaven, the earth, the water, the trees, the plants, the people, all of that, animals, how much godliness... How much godliness went in? Well, enough to create the world. Well, enough to create the world is the world... The world, actually, any infinitesimally tiny little bit of God is enough to create a world. And yet, relative to God, that's basically nothing. 
So the best analogy for that is the pronunciation of the letter hey. Oh, that's how much godliness. Yeah, that's how much godliness. Now, in contrast, the soul that God breathed into Adam, how much did God put into that? Above. Well, no. <laughs> you're right, when you, when, no, no, no. Because all of it. So there's this huge contrast here. The world gets how much godliness, effectively? Not much. Not much, right? Why do we know it's all of it? Because of the analogy of breathing forcefully. And what does the Zohar say? What is breathing forcefully? When you breathe forcefully, all of your vitality goes out. But the passage just says breathe. That's true. It says, That's true. Yeah. Because, because in Judaism, we have a concept that we don't look at sukkim outside the oral tradition. We don't look at verses in isolation. Okay? In fact, that's a good clue you're speaking to a Christian missionary. Is they start quoting verses and they don't know what the oral tradition says about the verse. Wait, I'm sorry. Could you repeat? Um, wait, I don't remember what I was going to repeat. Um, I'll repeat everything. So today we're learning chapter 2 of time. So <laughs> me. No. No, no. So the letter hey. What, what were you so saying? The le- so again, so, so the letter hey, the letter hey. If, again, using breath as the analogy, the two extremes of breath are pronouncing the letter hey on one hand and exhaling forcefully on the other hand. When you pronounce the letter hey, the bare minimum amount of breath comes out just enough to make it audible. When you exhale forcefully, all of your life force is outside, so much so that if you don't take another breath quickly, you're going to start like seeing spots and you know, start to feel woozy and then your consciousness slowly disappears. That's what happens with a lack of oxygen. A lack of oxygen. Excuse me. So which means like this, how, when, when, so it's like this, God creates the world, how much of his being, his energy, whatever words we're gonna use right now, I don't care what it is, did God have to invest in the act of creating the world? And the answer is, effectively zero. Not zero, because from zero you get nothing. But relatively speaking, zero. That it's in- inconsequential. But you say that God created the world from nothing. Yeah. That is one of the reasons that we say that. There's a big question asked in Chassidus many places. Why do we say God created the world from nothing? God created the world from his own being, and God is not nothing. And the answer is, the energy that God invested in the world, relative to God, is nothing. Like, and later on the author was going to say this, imagine your whole life and then compare it to pronouncing the letter hey. Like how much is that worth? How much, how much physical, emotional, intellectual energy is invested in that? You can't say literally nothing because I mean something happened, but it's effectively nothing. On the other hand, how much of God's being did he invest in putting a godly soul into Adam? Right? The entirety of God's being is invested into that. So that's a huge dichotomy. Okay. Now. Wait, come on. Yeah. This is the vitality. This is what gives us laugh. Is this him breathing into us? Right? No, it's complicated. You have an animal soul also. Yeah. So that's yeah. okay. But yeah. then. This is the godly soul. Okay, but it gives us laugh, vitality, or like Hashem's. N- no, n- n- it's a sh- oh, so that I want to talk about um, 
probably in the next class of what this actually means more specifically. Okay. But we don't know if I start doing that now, we're not going to get. I'm going to stop in the middle. Okay. So. So. Now, we're going to have another analogy. So that's the first analogy. Now we're going to have a second analogy. Okay. So let's go back. When it says that, we are, that the soul is a, a part of God, what does it mean it's a part of God? It means that God cut off little pieces of himself? It's not a part. No, but I don't, I don't understand how, you, how God could make God of the soul with all of his being. And Why, what don't you understand? Well, I do get it, but I don't because... When we say, like, the hay is, like, a part of... No, the hay is the opposite. The hay is the opposite, right? The hay is the opposite. Right. So that makes sense because that... I guess when you say hay, you extend energy, but you still retain all of what you have. Yeah. So when you give... But when you give it all, then you're giving it all. Mm -hmm. What do you have left? Nothing. So how does God create a godly soul and leave? Well, let's use a psychological example, okay? How invested are you are in other people? It's not, like, it's not like one standard, right? Some people you're more invested in them, some people are less invested in them. Okay. Now, there is a rule about being invested, which is why um, you don't like to be invested in too many people too much. Not you personally, every person. Which is that Aside from the fact that we have usually a limited amount of our ability to invest in other people, but let's set that aside because that wouldn't be a good analogy for God. When you're invested in someone else, you've made yourself vulnerable to them. Right? So for instance, I'm really invested, let's say, in whether you guys are learning and you don't learn, then all of a sudden that affects me. If I'm not that invested in whether you're learning or not and you don't learn, it doesn't really affect me. Right? So... How do we maintain our psychological health while being invested in other people? Because being invested in other people means you care, you're invested, that's great, but it also means you're vulnerable, right? And, you know, you get hurt. So how do you maintain your psychological health? Only invest a little. You only invest a little. How much? A little. As much as you can have. Or as little as you can Well, so, 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 so the rule is like this. We do two things. If we're healthy, if we're unhealthy, then we, we do other things. But if we're healthy, we do two things. The first thing, and this is not usually done consciously, the first thing we do is we make an evaluation about how um, resilient we are. Meaning, how much we can be hurt without it actually like destroying us. Okay? And once we make that decision, once we have the kind of that decision, once, once we figure that out, then we, then we invest that much in those relationships that are worth it. And we make sure not to invest anymore. Right? So you first figure out how much is safe. In other words, how much hurt can you handle? Okay? Um, and then you go on, make sure that you're investing that much and no more than that. Now, number one, are we really good at making that evaluation? No. Are we really good then at keeping to that evaluation? So do we often not invest enough when we should invest more or invest too much when we should have invested less? Yeah, and then we have problems in life. Okay. Now, and then we have another issue, which is that we have a limited amount of ability to do this. So if you're too invested in too many people, 
becomes there's just less of you around. If now what what this means is that the more resilient a person is, the more vulnerable they can be, which means the more they can be invested, right? Okay. At what point does God break? Does God become dysfunctional? Does God have a breaking point? Never. So which means how vulnerable can God be? Infinitely. Infinite. I mean vulnerable in the psychological sense, right? Where vulnerability, depe- vulnerability depends on resilience. In other words, so God can be hurt by us like, to an infinite degree. degree without him becoming dysfunctional. So this is one of the really annoying things about the English language is that there's two concepts called vulnerability. One is a physical concept, one is a, well, then the physical concept is borrowed to psychology, and psychology it's used entirely differently. Physical vulnerability means the ability to be hurt. But being hurt physically means like, like you get broken, like you're actually broken. And so like physical vulnerability is bad. Right? Psychological vulnerability means that you can be hurt emotionally. Okay? And it actually turns out that a person's real ability to be hurt emotionally depends on their resilience to that pain, meaning the fact that they can be hurt and still be functional, which is why when people aren't resilient, they allow themselves to be vulnerable. They pull up masks and they develop coping mechanisms and dissociations. And in severe cases, they develop serious mental illnesses to avoid being vulnerable. So psycho- psychologically, to be able to be vulnerable means that I can be hurt and continue to function. Whereas physically being vulnerable means like concrete bricks will break my body so I should stay away from falling concrete bricks. There's obviously a relation between the words, but there are different concepts. So I'm using it in the psychological sense. There's, in other words, God's psychological pain threshold is infinite, yeah? Assuming he has one. Um, and so if that's the case, is there any reason for him to hold something back? Like, there is a real reason why we need to hold something back. Because if I give everything I have to someone else, and then they do something with it, then what's left of me? Correct. So even though God has this infinite psychological pain threshold, we, if you're taking us as a, as a parable, like we only open ourselves up to psychological vulnerability when we decide that a relationship is valuable to Correct. Us. Which is why it's important to emphasize that this is true of the godly soul. It's not true of the rest of creation. The rest of the creation got what? The letter hey. Right? The rest of creation gets how much godliness? In other words, in other words, there's so to speak two tracks that God is operating on. There's one track where God is like, okay, there's a world, for whatever reason I want there to be a world, and I'm gonna create the world, and I'm gonna provide for the world what it needs. That's a very professional relationship, and how much of godly how much of God's being is invested in that, as much as the world needs, when the world is relatively nothing to God, so it needs relatively little of God. With the godly soul, it's the reverse. God is investing all of himself, and yes, all of himself means nothing's left. Which is why we have statements of our sages say that when the Jews go into exile, God goes with them. Now, the reason why we would like to keep something left of ourselves, we don't want to fully invest in someone else, is because there is a point at which if I fully invest in you and then you do something that hurts me, I can actually suffer damage that makes me dysfunctional. And so I have to maintain something in reserve. 
And only in very extreme rare cases does a person fully invest themselves to the point that they're not holding anything back. It's very rare. But God with the godly soul isn't like that. God is fully invested in the being of the godly soul. And so, yeah, and we're going to see this as a theme that's going to go on later on. Whatever happens to the godly soul is kind of vicariously going to be true of God as well. Yeah. Is this to say that when it comes to people who are not Jewish, God does not have that vulnerability? Correct. So with things like when the Egyptians were dying in the... See, I mean, and those are like a really different level of not Jewish. But like, and the... What is the story that the angels were singing, were rejoicing, and God said, "Like these are also my children." As if to no, say that, he didn't say my children. Okay, my creations. So, as if to communicate, though, that somehow they're dying. Right. Him. Right. Because this is what's important to understand is that when you, you is that we when you when you take an analogy, you have to take the abstract idea from the analogy. If I say you're you're invested to a bare minimum, mm-hmm. what does that mean practically? Like, what comes from your being invested to a bare minimum? I don't, I don't know. Like, like, I don't know. Like, say, like, there's somebody and you're, like, t- supposed to take care of them or there's a job you're supposed to do and you're invested to a bare minimum. Like, if, if nothing's going wrong, I'll do my part. I don't know. Yeah, and is it going... Are, 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 if they need emotional support, are you going to be able to give it to them? If your whole attitude is just the bare minimum, no, because it's because the nature of the nature of how people work, the nature of how people work is that we are either moving in one direction or another. Mm-hmm. So if your attitude is I'm going to do the bare minimum, I'm going to like like they say they used to say punch the clock and go home. Yeah. Then what ends up happening is over time you just care less and less and less and less and less, and you rationalize how little it matters, and mm-hmm. to a point that you just like it's all like on autopilot. Okay. Now, and clearly you're operating on a bare minimum doesn't doesn't create existence. It doesn't uh, bring life into being. So we have, to, we have to say, yes, it's God on a bare minimum, but God on a bare minimum is infinitely more caring and thoughtful and concerned and invested in, in what goes on than a person on the highest level. So it's all it has to be relative to God. In other words, does God care about every single creation? Of course he does. He cares more about the creation you could possibly fathom. But the question is, how much does his care about that creation measure up to what he's capable of? So you have to, you have, to have, these, you have these, these two different standards. So what, what I shouldn't project my experiences onto God, ever. Okay. No, but we are trying to use ourselves oh, to understand. Not project, we want to abstract. Okay. So just like I have two ways of, being, of caring, God has two ways of caring. There's a difference though. My two ways of caring is basically a, a tendency towards indifference versus a tendency towards caring. That's basically what it is. With God, it's caring based on what you need, but if you really, but that means, that means to the fullest, right? I mean, God is fully invested in, in the righteousness and the, in the morality and the ethics of everything that goes on. He's, he's, he's invested in, in, in cares about you know, what happens to rocks, which is something that we can't fathom. Like, how would you care about what happens to a rock? But he does. Right. It's just that if you, measure, if you just measure that against what he's capable of, mm-hmm. the answer is, well, that's nothing compared to what he's actually capable of. And what he's fully capable of is invested in the Jew. What is the message that that gives to 99% of the population more to say God is invested in you to a bare minimum, which is obviously a lot mm-hmm. because you're functioning in a world that is sustained by God at every moment, da-da-da. But 
But at the same time, like it's conveying a message that God invests in you to the bare minimum. And what's the similarity to that? Oh, the way he invests in, let's say, rocks. So, like, what is that? So, so where does that facilitate a, a healthy relationship between ignorance and bliss? So, <laughs> no, 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 it's a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very good question. The, the answer is like this. There's an important statement in Kabbalah, which is that the main point of God is not that he's the creator. Okay. We have a problem, which is that we objectify God. God becomes the source of whatever you need this source of. So whatever, and, and he is, I mean, he creates the world and source of morality and he's, Okay, but if you define God that way, then what you've done is you define God in terms of, of of you define the creator in terms of the creation, and the idea the idea that um, Judaism and Hasidism makes a very big deal about this is that a Jew has the ability to have a relationship with God that has nothing to do with the fact that he's the creator. The fact that he created the world is just not part of the equation. It's, in other words, it is, a, it, is a, it is, for lack of words, it's an interrelationship between one being and another being that are fully invested in each other. The fact that he happens to also be the creator of the world, very nice. But if you're talking about God being the creator of the world, then this distinction becomes irrelevant. Because God, because if you feel God doesn't care enough about you, then, then, then clearly that's not, then that's not the bare minimum. Whatever, whatever a person needs God to be invested in them, God is as the creator. But the question is, is there more to God than that? And how does God view being the creator relative to his own being? If you want to think of it using this analogy, there's professional life and there's private life. So you're saying like the rest of the world are in business with God, great business partner. We live with him at home. That's right. Okay. That's the premise of the... And they shouldn't be offended that they're not also married to... Well, let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Okay. You're going to get married at some point, yeah? God will it. If somebody, if somebody is jealous of you, that she's not married to your husband, what is your attitude going to be? To her, not pleasant. <laughs> I mean, uh, n- 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 intellectually, like, like, how would you view her? Like, not, I'm saying, how would you feel? Like, what's going through her head? Where, where is she coming from? Like, what, 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 where, what's going on in her life that, that, that the thing that bothers her is she's not married to your husband? Right? So, now, if, on the other hand, I'm going to use a different analogy, if, on the other hand, it really, really bothers you, like, it, and, and insatiably, you cannot deal with the fact that you don't have this personal relationship with God, guess what you probably have? And probably that's what makes people convert. In other words... The, the, the idea is that, that, that somebody that that idea truly irks them to no end and they can get no peace and that's coming from, so to speak, a good place. We're not saying, it's not, it's not, I'm saying, oh, I, I have this person, you can't have it, you could have it also. But it, it's a different thing. And that's exactly what I'm saying, is this relationship between the God and the godly soul is, is not part of the same framework as God creating the world. God creating the world is, there's nothing of who God truly is in that because God is infinitely transcendent of creation. So whatever the creation needs, God is fully there and he's the most compassionate and the most caring and the blah, all those things that theologians speak about. But that's God's day job. That's what he does when he's at the office. Is that offensive though? That he chose to, to like be married with us, to dwell in our midst, whatever, 
and to like for them to be his date. Do you, do you get what I'm saying though? It's not it's not that it's bad to be like the profession of God is to make you exist. That's not a bad thing. It's the comparison. It's the fact that like there are people out there. So I will tell you. I will tell you two things. I'll tell you two things. That can bother a person for one of two reasons. One is because they're Jewish. This bothers Jews fundamentally because if you have a personal relationship with somebody, the idea of having a professional relationship with them seems disturbing. Okay, so every Jew, Jews by definition are supposed to be bothered by this that non-Jews don't have this because it's like, okay. Then there's the idea that we live in a world that, that believes in egalitarianism, that everybody's fundamentally equal. And that... Is just like a false idea, which I'm not going to get into right now. So if, but yeah, and in fact, that's one of the things that the coming of Mashiach is that as much as possible to incorporate the whole world, including non-Jews, into this relationship with God that go transcends God just being the creator of the world. But they're not also going to be in this like married state. Uh, it's not the same, but it's more than it is now. It's like, you know, it's not, things aren't. Yeah. Should non-Jews be striving for this messianic higher level of relationship? Or should they just be kind of chill with where they're at? Um, so the way it's explained in Chassidus is that they should, but they're not capable of appreciating it unless Jews live godly lives in their midst. That's what makes them capable of appreciating what they're missing. All right, we'll end here. And tomorrow we'll learn about the second analogy. Okay. No, I just want to... Okay. Thank you.